This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes Store, the Google Play Store, or on the Podbean app. You can find more Thanks for Sharing at www.thanksforsharingpodcast.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash healingpaths. That's path with an S. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm John T. And I'm Jackie P. We're really excited today to have Stacy Sprout with us. Um, Stacy does a lot of wonderful things that make our world a better place. Uh, she's a therapist in the Washington State area. Are you around Seattle, Stacy? Yep, I'm in Seattle, Washington. Mm-hmm. In Seattle, Washington. She's the author of the memoir Naked in Public, uh, which was a very groundbreaking, uh, one of the the very first uh, first hand accounts we've had of women in sex and love yeah. addiction recovery. Were you actually, Stacey, were you the first or second woman to start talking about that? I was not either. I was neither the first or the second. (laughs) But I was, I was, I was, I was early. I'll just put it that way. Definitely. Sue Silverman wrote a book called Love Sick. Uh And that was one of the early books where she really tied in the issue of sex love addiction. She, she talked about going to inpatient treatment and woven uh, the language that we know in recovery there. So I would say she's, she's definitely the pioneer. Okay. Marnie Faree shared right. some of her story in her book, No Stones. Uh, so there's a few others, but um, in terms of telling a memoir from start to finish and really trying to include yeah. the 12-step sexual recovery journey and what recovery has looked like for me, um, not just kind of the, the time of the addiction, but also a lifespan of, I think it was about 11 years of recovery. I wrote about 10 or 11 years. Um, yeah, that was, I was trying to do something different there. Yeah. And it has led the way for other women to start mm-hmm. talking about whether it's in uh, movie format or other books to start really talking about their own story. So great. Yeah. I am excited to see more and more resources out there, more books. I've got a list of 10 memoirs related to female sex and love addiction on my blog because I love memoirs myself. It's a great Uh way for me to learn. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So we've got Stacy on today to talk specifically about female sex and love addiction, Mm -hmm. um, which she's an expert on and provides a lot of wonderful training and resources. Um, for women in sex and love addiction recovery. So Stacey, if you could start um, maybe talking about the the difference between sex addiction and sex and love addiction, because I think that's a really important distinction. Well, I'll tell a little bit of my own story of realizing that, because when I first went to 12-step recovery, it was focused more on love addiction, and I actually couldn't relate as well because my profile looked more like what I've heard Marnie Free call a classic sex addiction, which is much more like we see in men, where the behavior is focused on sex to get power. Mm. And the relational issues were secondary in terms of importance. And in fact, I was pretty phobic of relationships and, you know, kind of in the throes of my sexual acting out. So I got into recovery more focused on sex addiction. And I was one of, you know, I was usually the only woman in the room. It was much more um, men in that fellowship of looking at sex addicts without looking as much at the relational issues. So eventually, as I made progress in my sexual recovery, I started looking at the issue of intimacy and relationships and what I was doing in those that were 
that was addictive for me. But I would say most women go the opposite direction. They start looking at uh, intimacy issues and relational issues, and then they may start to have some awarenesses about how they use sex in relationships to try to get their needs met, but maybe in ways that are not so healthy for them. So I think, you know, a common definition is that female love addicts are looking for some kind, trying to get their needs met through relationship and sex is secondary. And then if the sex addiction is primary, it comes through the sexuality and the, the relational issues can actually be, they can be avoidant or aversive to relationships. Okay. But many women have both. Yeah. Great. And um, you, you have this conceptualization of kind of phases of recovery for women in sex and love addiction recovery. Um, can you outline that for us a bit? Yes, I would love to. And thank you for asking me about that because I'm really enjoying talking about what happens longer term for women if they get into recovery for love addiction or for sex addiction. You know, the, the beginning stages often come from a place of crisis and great pain and unmanageability. And then people start trying to define what sobriety is for them, which I think sometimes is easier to do with sex addiction because it's mm-hmm. typically more behavioral. Uh-huh. Love addiction sobriety can be harder to define, but we work on it. You know, some of the things I see are no domestic violence and, you know, no fighting in front of the kids, you know, just kind of trying to look at some of the things that people do that, you know, stalking or illegal behaviors, risky stuff. Um, but one way or another, there gets to be a definition of, okay, this is okay behavior for me and this is not okay. And in recovery, we often use a three-circle plan or with women, I, I, mm-hmm. I use other tools too. But ultimately, there starts to get some stability. Mm-hmm. And where a woman is coming out of crisis and she's starting to do well in different areas of her life. And so that can make up the crisis phase of recovery, which sometimes people call stage one. And then starting to move into what some people look at as more emotional sobriety issues, not love addiction with a, a qualifier per se, but just how is a woman relating emotionally in her life? And, you know, what about expanding the ideas of, of moving out of survival into thriving in certain areas? So not just, you know, what's happening in the relationship, but what's happening in all spheres of her life that, mm-hmm. are, you know, she's looking at the concept of serenity and Many people talk about that in phase two. Maybe she looks at what she's doing for money and is it working for her or isn't it or how she's parenting or what does she want to do with her life in the future and just starts to get, you know, phase two often does involve a considerable amount of trauma clearing and trauma processing. Mm -hmm. Instead of acting out or dramatizing the story, it starts to become something that someone can do maybe through therapy or group or um, sometimes through 12-step some of that could be looked at of just going inside and really getting into some of that story and and moving the trauma into grief and grieving. So for me, stage one is often about defining and getting sober and starting to get more stable in different areas. And then phase two can be refining the stability, expanding the stability and working through the blocks to that stability that relate to trauma and grief. And so Oftentimes, therapists will say, hey, don't date when you're in the crisis stage if someone is Mm -hmm. single or, you know, really work on yourself. And in stage two, dating often becomes part of the conversation. What Mm -hmm. about 
a relationship? What about dating? What about or expanding my intimacy? Let's say if someone is married or in a committed partnership, how do we expand our intimacy? So um, those are things that I hear people talk about, but I don't always hear people talking about what I would call actually three and four now these days. Right. Um, and so it's particularly related to sex and, and related to intimacy. So I can talk more about that if you're interested um, or if you have any response, I'd be curious. Yeah, I, I think that would be a great, I think that would be a great discussion um, for today. I also want to note um, phase one is no small task especially as you're talking yeah. about like part of that definition is no domestic violence, no fighting in front of the kids, like no stalking yeah. behaviors. Um, yeah. That can take a very long time and a lot of work to sort that, that yeah. stuff out. There's a lot of tolerating the intolerable for a lot of the, the female mm-hmm. sex and love addicts yeah. I work with. Yeah. But yeah. let's have you, let's have you talk about phase three and then maybe we can come back to the um, sexual and intimacy pieces that you were getting at. Okay. Yeah. Well, so I used to talk about phase three as, you know, your life is really starting to hum along. Like it's really starting to work. You, you've gotten clear on what sober is for you, you know, sexually, relationally, emotionally, you've expanded it and you've done the hard work of, of the trauma clearing and moving into grief and grieving. And, you know, you've, you've grown your community so that you have people around you that you can really talk with and, you know, kind of bounce off who you are and who you want to be. And then in stage three, it, what, what it, it looks and feels like is things are really working. I mean, they can work in stage two, but there's kind of this push pull that, that seems to happen. And in stage three, it's not that there's no struggles because there sure is. Um, but there's a sense of, of kind of almost like a, um, a velocity that starts going in, in the direction and, and exponentially growing like, wow, things are humming along here. And, yeah. and the more things work, the more things are working. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I find it's, it's with, I was going to say, I find with clients in this stage, it's also getting used to life on that level. Right. So, so they exactly. don't all of a sudden sabotage or go back to like, let's go back to some chaos right? because I don't know how to do this. You know? Yes. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I was just talking to a friend who I believe is in this stage. She's actually in Europe and she's going to attend the first Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous conference um, in Europe that's coming up later this month, if I have it right. And we were talking about how nobody prepared us for our struggle in tolerating all this awesome stuff. Right. And well, you know, when you think about it, though, if it's if if receiving abundance and goodness and praise and love and joy and fun and play is like a muscle of the brain or the nervous system, and and all your muscles have been about surviving the crisis, and that's what you're really strong at, it's almost a new set of muscles that need to develop, or or a new set of we can say you know neurological receptors yeah. that that you have to actually kind of grow your brain to receive. And if there's too much good that can come in, it can be overwhelming and flooding. And mm-hmm. so yeah, I think that's a real phenomenon. Is looking at moving out of even from stage one to two or two to three, you really have to grow new new abilities and that's mm-hmm. it's exhausting mm-hmm. i i think that experience really starts to challenge some of this hope or belief that we may have had at the beginning of recovery that it's going to be this straight trajectory thing and and the goal is to reduce yeah. struggle yeah 
And, and I find yeah. with, with many of the people I work with, the goal may not be to eliminate struggle. It may be to embrace it and see the opportunities for growth that are there. So working yeah. on this new set of muscles because my life is really good and I enjoy mm-hmm. being in it and chaos is not the norm anymore. Um, there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of growth and maturity that we have to develop in order to keep sustaining that. Yeah, I so agree with you. Yeah, just learning how to live in life, right? The, mm-hmm. the ups and downs, the highs and lows, but they're not quite the highs and lows that they used to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're different, different kinds of highs, different lows. And, and so, you know, one thing to me that might characterize the later stage in recovery is for, for many is a profound sensitivity. And I relate to that in my own life. I don't have the things that I used to have that numbed me out or distracted me in the same way. Uh-huh. And so what, what am I going to do when I'm, I'm doing all this practice to open my heart and with my husband, it's wonderful. And then I, you know, I walk outside and something is there that's really painful. Uh, how, do I, how do I cope with that? There's, there's a certain quality of grief and being alive that I think just becomes part of mental health hygiene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just the ongoing capacity to get support for grief because yes. we're not alone on this planet. And, you know, I think that's why for me, I have focused so much on, on being of service when I can and trying to put things out in the world because it helps me with my grief to feel like, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I want to be part of the solution. And if I've found some things that are helpful for me, I want to be part of sharing that because I know there are so many women out there that are still struggling. And so I want to do my part and that that's the piece, you know, I used to think like the stage three recovery of four, it's like, it's going to be all bliss. And, but actually a lot of it is, is about knowing how to grieve and knowing how to be in that joy and receive the heaven days. I call them like the days where things are so awesome. And, but also how to be of service as a way of life. Like that really is, um, and not, not hopefully too much self-sacrificing, but really, um, just giving from a place of at least having a half half mm-hmm. full cup. We talked about yeah. that today. I haven't been sleeping too well, so right now I'm feeling kind of tired. But I'm also just excited to get to talk about this because how I wished that I could have heard people talking like this when I was first starting recovery. That hey, there is hope and there's a path, and it's it's amazing and it's profound and it's worth it. And hang in there on those days that are hell days or tough yeah. days because yeah. it does get better. And and I love that because that gives kind of this realistic way of what recovery looks like. It's a it's a way of envisioning. It's not it's not perfect, right? Mm-hmm. It's not stress free, mm-hmm. um, but mm-hmm. but recognizing too that we're able to hold more than maybe we used to be able to. Uh, we're able mm-hmm. to to deal with more, right? Even if it takes us out, we know how to take care of the self and come back from that. So. Yeah, I think that's great yeah. for people to listen to this and have a realistic idea of this is what recovery looks like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I heard the definition of enlightenment is picking ourselves up off the floor more quickly next time <laughs> or this time. <laughs> that sounds so pretty true. realistic. So true. <laughs> yeah. So, so this is kind of the, if I'm understanding, this is this is the work in stage three is coming to terms with um, coming to terms with this life and kind of discovering some new capacities within ourselves, um, some new possibilities within ourselves. 
Um, I, I think of it as like things are starting to work. Mm-hmm. Um, if there was one quality and, and part of that is discovering new capacities with ourselves, discovering just new blessings in the world um, and how those can interact. And, and, and then just from a place of more fullness, giving something back, just having something, mm-hmm. really having something to give back. And, and that sense of, I don't like obligation necessarily, but, I mean, I did have someone say duty, but both of those sound a little, I don't know, maybe not as, as generous as I think the stage is. Okay. It's just more like um, how I see, how I see women get who get to the stage, how I've experienced it myself is, um, uh, yeah, I'm kind of stumbling for the word to describe there is enough, a sense of abundance, abundance some yeah. from that place of abundance, like wanting to share creative, creatively and excitedly and, um, you know, be of support. So, yeah. Um, I, I love the distinction you made earlier on moving from self-sacrifice into giving. Um, that even just sounds like so much more pleasant than this duty bound <laughs> obligation to let the world yeah. suck you dry. And (laughs) it's really more about what can I give and what's a meaningful contribution from me. Yeah. And, and they go together. And I think when I think of stage four, what I am thinking of stage four right now has to do with the sacred and I'm just exploring this myself. So I don't feel like I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just, just feel like I'm trying to find words for some of this experience and being really curious about moving into it more, but something kind of conscious, and precious uh, that that is very present and um, abundant and 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 also this awareness that we all have it like it's not like oh you have to you know there's something timeless about it and so I've been looking at that in my own life and recovery around intimacy and also sexuality and just inviting for for people who are interested to to start to develop the concept of a vision of, you know, what, what would it look like if your intimacy moved into that place of kind of conscious preciousness Mm -hmm. and your sexuality and, you know, not that it sex has to be one way in order Mm -hmm. to be okay. Um, But it's just a, it's something that I'm discovering as one of the gifts of this vulnerability that can feel so excruciating sometimes is this sense of, of just a gentle like preciousness that is really, amazing and I never in a million years would have thought that would have been possible for me because I had I had such a harshness around my sexuality which of course was informed informed by my own experiences and ways I was treated Mm -hmm. but this idea that that intimacy and sexuality could come from a place of of just such immense just Mm -hmm. joy and specialness it was really pretty cool yeah and I I am just reflecting on the ordering of these phases. And I think there's, I think there's a a truth in where we look at phase two, like we, we start to develop some stability. We're out of the crisis. We develop the stability. We're looking at relationships and starting to get into those. And then in phase three and four, I think that's where we can really start figuring out even more precisely, like who am I and what do I need? And there's this unfolding Mm -hmm. there. And I think a lot of people, um, you know, out of that fear and that, that um, sometimes the un, 
unbearable nature of vulnerability can say like, I want to do three and four and then I'll do two. <laughs> like when I'm set up to have these awesome experiences and relationships and this tenderness that you talk about, then I'll be ready for phase two. And I think the truth is there's a lot of, there's a lot of mess to wade through to find the kind of meaning you're talking about in three and four. I so appreciate you saying that because I, that's, that's how it went for me. And that is how I see that it goes for the women that I work with is that people don't step into necessarily the absolute, you know, relationship that they're going to stay in forever right away. I mean, there, there is this process that is rather messy and I'm not saying it's not possible, but you know, we're growing through relationships and maybe women especially are figuring out who they are as, as emotional and sexual beings as they try things out in a sober yeah. but not perfect way. And an example of this is I was working with a woman and, you know, for me, a big thing that I do as I'm supporting women is to self-define what they want if they're going to go out and start dating. Do they want monogamy? Do they want to date lots of people? Do they want a long-term relationship? Do they just want to try their sexuality out? Like, what is it that they want? And so I came up with the term conscious promiscuity because one of the women I was working with was just like, I just want to have sex with different people and I want to try that and not do it in the old, super self-destructive ways that she used to do that. Right. Um, and so we're kind of doing this play on words of how could she take something that was a way she used to judge herself and, and, you know, try to make it into something that she could be aware of and try and make decisions about. And so I think that just knowing that some of that exploration is going to be different for each person, but it's, mm -hmm. it, yeah, you don't just start at the end. Right. Yeah. And it sounds like, um, phase three and four play with each other and play off of each other and, and interact and would be kind of this, I don't know if you say like are three and four just kind of lifelong phases. That is my experience so far. I'm okay. just going to <laughs> in the water of my experience with we'll phase four. Out. So I'll have to tell you if there's more, but, um, and, and, you know, you tell me too from your own experience, but what is something that you said earlier is I think of almost like the infinity symbol, you know, the, uh -huh. the eight, figure eight on its side, you know, kind of you go back and forth because if we think of an addict as, having formed an attachment to their addiction, right? They right. bonded with the addictive process, whatever that was. It's almost like the child who goes away from mom, the mom being the source, being the addiction, uh -huh. and then goes back and then goes out and goes back. You know, there's, there is sort of a dance that, that reminds me of the early child's attachment, kind of walking away from the mother and coming back that we do around recovery, um, and, you know, I know you've talked to Kelly McDaniel and her beautiful work on mother hunger yeah. and, and, you know, so, so that if, if, if addiction used to be the surrogate, you know, wire mother, um, or the fake cloth mother or whatever, and you have, you know, we move away from that into something else, maybe the attachment to, you know, the, the therapist or the sponsor or whomever, and then kind of go back and forth. And then eventually um, there becomes this vision of something after that, like after the trauma work or after the grief work, what if, you know, I have more to give, what if there's more? And then someone moves into that. And then it's like a third, you know, a third loop. So you have a figure eight, but then there's a third loop, you know, the third yeah. stage, but then you go back to the second one because you, you know, and to me, a lot of the work of the third stage is 
is defining and going after what somebody wants. And we, I, I start with that as a vision, but sometimes it has to wait and we wade through trauma to get there. And so then, you know, but then visions come true and life gets better and then more trauma comes up. And right. we go, oh, okay, go back to stage two. And mm-hmm. hopefully we, there's not a relapse, you know, because we know yeah. that untreated trauma is one of the biggest contributors to relapse. Uh, so that, you know, gradually it's like, okay, now you're going from two to three and then, okay, three right. to four. Oops. Okay. Hopefully not back to one, but mm-hmm. maybe in some areas, yeah, yes. feeling kind of powerless and starting over. And, you know, so, yeah, I think that's, that's a very, it, it feels like part of the organic process, not so yeah. linear. So that we're, we're using the phases, but they may come about from different things than the previous times we've worked the phases. Mm-hmm. and. And we may work at sometimes at a deeper level, maybe than we did before. Not that we, it wasn't helpful before, but all of a sudden maybe some trauma comes up. That's a little bit deeper. So I I like that, that these are just, um, these are phases that we go through, but they're also kind of circular. And it's not like we, we move through a phase never to come back to that phase. Mm -hmm. Right. And so let me give you an example of that. So I have had an eating disorder and I've worked with that in therapy and 12-step recovery and had various experiences with food. And for a lot of my recovery, I, I just couldn't eat sugar because it was so dysregulating for me. I would regress and go into my wounded child and, mm-hmm. or I would just want more and more. And so then at different times, I've reintroduced sugar and said, well, how am I doing with this? Can I still do this? And so not so much. I've never done so well with it. So I typically avoid it. And so I'm right now in this exploration of just this new project that I'm doing. And it's really exciting. And at the same time, I've had this draw back into sugar. But Mm -hmm. instead of having as much sugar or as big, you know, as what I used to have, I would just have little tiny bits. And the draw has been to chocolate chip cookies. Okay. And I'm like, why? Why is this suddenly so important to me as I'm growing and my life is getting bigger? And one of the things I realized is the first time that my mom and I really bonded was when she made chocolate chip cookies Mm -hmm. and she had gotten sober when I was nine years old. And I wrote about this a little bit in my, my memoir, Naked in Public, but she, she got uh, off alcohol and drugs, but she got on the sugar. So Mm -hmm. often there's a replacement addictive Mm -hmm. process. Mm -hmm. And so she started having sugar in the home and she baked cookies. And so for me, it was a way of being with her that was really profound. And so I, I didn't really realize that. And so now that I'm at this, you know, kind of new level of working on my mother hunger, as Kelly would say, and ready to heal and um, some of her other work, I, I'm getting back to, well, what, what is this wounded little girl in me? You know, who does she think is mother? And the answer is chocolate chip cookies. Yeah. Um, so I'm really what a great like, mother. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I know my mom did the best she could, and but there's this almost like this like I'm gently like prying the cookie out of her hand. Right. Not prying this wrong word. Like I'm gently peeling back her little fingers mm-hmm. and like, well, let's try some other sources of nurture mm-hmm. besides the cookie. Like, can yeah. I be with you? Can I try a meditation? Can I? You know, so that, I don't know that I feel at, at addiction level, kind of stage one crisis or powerless. I don't feel that way, but I definitely, I know that it's not really in my bliss stage to, you know, to, to, to do that repeatedly if I feel anxious. Right. Yeah. So that's, I guess, just, 
kind of what you're saying about, so I don't have to go back to where I was, but it still feels a little bit like that old dance. Yeah. Well, that, that feels like some of that gentleness you talked about in phase four, like instead of looking at, oh my gosh, chocolate chip cookies, how are these going to wreck my life? It's this very gentle rejoining <laughs> that's like, are there some other options too? Chocolate chip cookies are great. Yeah. What else? They are. What else? Um, yeah. We yeah. Just, I think it was in the last episode we ended on a chocolate chip cookie <laughs> note because yeah. they are fantastic. <laughs> We don't know why, but that's where we ended yeah. last, last episode. So, <laughs> Stacey, you've been really generous with your own story and your own experience here. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could maybe talk about some of the things that have really surprised you or were really unexpected as you've explored phase three and four in your own recovery. Well, I would say, let's see. Um, the thing that surprised me in phase three when I wasn't having to do so much trauma and grief work and I had, I just had more emotional energy and, and resilience I felt was how important service became for me. I thought I would ride off into the sunset and kind of be done with all this stuff. Um, but we touched on it earlier, but just realizing that I'm a global citizen mm-hmm. and that that is going to be part of my life for the rest of my life on some level is trying to, out of gratitude, give back for so much that's been given to me. So that, that was kind of surprising for me. I thought I'd write my book and publish it and then just like, let it go. Okay, you're Mm -hmm. done. Now I'll just, yay, you know? Um, And, and I think as I've been looking at kind of what's come after that, um, just getting that into balance in my life, which again is ongoing, but is actually how, how fun life can be. Like there is an element of pain in life today as it's going. We were touching some on what's going on in the world right now. And, and what's, what's true. I mean, they say it's never too late to have a happy childhood. And I have to tell you, it's so true. Mm. Like I am having these really fun experiences. An example is I joined a flag football team, which I absolutely (laughs) love. It's like my thing is playing flag football and I never thought I would play again because I hurt my knees playing before but I just it's like this excitement wouldn't go away and so I signed up and last week I caught a 35 yard pass (laughs) (laughs) I have to tell you like it it just has made me so happy and it sounds kind of silly or, you know, maybe it's just a, but it's, it's that whatever your thing is that uh-huh. brings you that childish joy um, is, it, you know, that that could be found and recaptured. And it, it is so energizing for the rest of the stuff I do. I'm here. I'm talking about it now. It's like, so finding those things, like really recapturing the joy of childhood and, and also the innocence, and I, you know, moving into the, the concept of sacred relationship and sacred sexuality, my husband and I, you know, we're having this experience of, of great innocence. I told my friend yesterday, I feel like I'm back on my honeymoon. Like, I feel like I'm dating and it's so fun, you know. So just the, the um, I think that, yeah, the, that has surprised me, the capacity um, for joy and bliss and play that has been very painful in the past or I just couldn't do it. I mean, and this is, you know what, I'm, I'm 48 years old. I got into therapy when I was 21 years old. I got into 12 step recovery when I was 31 years old and now I'm 48. So I guess that's 17 years of 
of 12 step recovery and however many more of, you know, some kind of healing journey. So for me, it's taken this long. I think, I think with the resources that, that people have now and women, I think it won't take them this long um, to get to, to those places. I'm really hopeful. And that's where I feel like conversations like this and, and people like you telling their story are so important because this to me is really what recovery is about. Like um, moving out of chaos and, and moving out of um, that kind of panic that we live in, like that, that definitely mm-hmm. makes life better, but this is really the door that recovery opens. And I'm so glad that you're willing to share um, your experience not just focused on getting sober and stopping the chaos, but the experience in building a life that you really love being a part of. Thank you. I do want to say just, uh, j- just because, because it's also here that I am also in the, I mean, I am still in therapy and I am still healing. Mm-hmm. And what I'm working with is this body-based terror so it's also true that in the process of freeing this kind of like wee like joy, you know, that just comes from the depths of my little my little um, intestines or wherever that comes from, there 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 is also this this other stuff that's been in there, um, and and I just haven't been able to get to it because I I don't know I think it just wasn't strong enough, uh, but it's it's starting to be you know kind of unthawing and yeah just some body based stuff that happened to me when I was little. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, in a way, I'm, I'm differentiating these stages, but they're sort of all, they're all one also, um, in that it's, everything's happening through the body. Like we're, it's, right. Uh, and so that just, what I have learned now, though, is I just, I circle the wagons, I surround myself with so much support and love, and I'm always refining that experience, so that whatever comes up, there's a, there's, I try to have that sense of abundance and enough that I can, you know, the safe nest to fly back into is my life today. I'm not, I'm not kind of like tumbling down and about mm-hmm. to smash into the ground anymore. Great. Well, Stacy, thank you for coming in and talking with us today. Can you tell people how they find you and the work that you're doing? Oh, sure. Um, thank you for having me. I love your show. I've really enjoyed listening to it. So I'm honored to be able to be here. And thanks for your interest in women. I know you have had some amazing shows talking about women and recovery. And so my work is primarily available at my website, which is my name, stacysprout.com, S-T-A-C-I-S-P-R-O-U-T.com. And yeah, I've got some some stuff on there. There's resources for recovery. There's some, some um, presentations I'm given, I've given where I talk more about the issues I'm talking about now. And um, certainly you can buy my book through my website or through Amazon. So those are some ideas. Great. Thank you, Stacey. Thank you, Stacey. Thanks for your time. So we want to remind you at the end of this episode that your story matters. Remember, there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. You can share your story with us on our Facebook page, Healing Paths Inc., or on our website, www.thanksforsharingpodcast.com. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. At the end of another episode, we want to remind you that nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Remember the prayer of the perfectionist. 
Help me remember I can't do it all. Help me to take things one step at a time, and that the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I'm learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone, that I can ask for help. Help me to, re to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.